Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Before we explore this week's story, I have a question for you. What about your stories? Whether it's a book project that wants to be birthed, deep, authentic writing to support your business, or a personal creative project you can't quite name yet, I'm here to support your process and help you get your words onto the page and into the world. I work with folks who are writing memoirs, chronicles of the spiritual journey, and books that explore healing and the imagination, even as they explore the toughest truths of life. I support entrepreneurs, especially coaches and therapists in private practice, who wish to weave their personal experiences with their professional knowledge and wisdom. Do you want to build a writing practice and develop the ideas you know you must share? Visit my website, marisagowdy.com, to learn more about my writing coaching services and set up a free 30-minute consultation. Season 3, Episode 10, Bride and the Kalyak, A Scottish Story. Our guest is Katie Swift. Katie is a socially engaged artist and storyteller from Northumberland and is now based in the Scottish borders. Her work aims to create social and political change with individuals, groups, or communities through weaving together Scottish Gaelic folklore, mythology, folk herbalism, and creative practices. She recently graduated with an MA in socially engaged art with the University of the Highlands and Islands, where she focused on how ritual and creative practices can help us to process our collective grief for the earth. Well, I am so excited to have Katie here on the podcast today. As is our way on Knotwork Storytelling, first we ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll explore together all the ways that it still resonates through life, then and now. So Katie, will you tell us a story? Yes, thank you so much. Long ago, almost at the very beginning of time itself, the earth was covered in a vast, ocean. Across the ocean strode a giantess. Around her shoulders she held a dun-coloured shawl, and on her back was a creel. This giant woman was known by many names, and one of these names was the Kalia. She waded north. As she moved through the water, Clods of mud she had gathered from the seabed began to fall from her creel. When she noticed this, she stopped. She felt a surge of vision and began to sculpt the clay. With her great hands, she sculpted mountains and hills. With her huge forearms, she carved valleys and glens. 
She dug her fingers into the rich, dark clay and drew rivers across the land. As she did this, the water began to flow along them. When she noticed this, she then dug deep, dark rocks. Inspired, she began to dig up enormous rocks from the seabed. She carried them in her apron as she strode across her new land to create more of the landscape. And she dropped a few boulders as she went. She worked and worked until she felt happy with her creation and she chose the tallest mountain as her throne. And this was Ben Nevis. The clay earth was fertile. It was soon covered in green life. Thousands of wild, magical and medicinal plants and trees sprang up. From shore to shore, the land was covered in the thick Caledonian forest. Scott pine, ash, elm, birch, oak, yew and sycamore grew deep roots, strong trunks and wide branches. Life began to spread in all its forms through the forest, in the valleys, in the lochs, rivers and across the beaches. Time passed. So much time that the Kaliak stopped noticing it passed. The giantess's creative energy continued and she became the mother to many gods and goddesses, giants and men. In fact, she had many giant sons. Some were horned like deer and others had many heads. Sometimes they would quarrel and sit atop of the mountains and throw rocks at each other. And she would have to punish them by locking them for a while inside the mountains. But she loved them. Over time, her skin became blue and mottled, wrinkled and aged. Her long hair became white as frost. Her one giant eye remained keen as an eagle. And it would dart quickly around like a mackerel. Her teeth were sharp and they became rust red. To many, she would have been terrifying. Now the Kaliak had other powers. She would call upon the freezing north wind and she could control the storm clouds. She could call the snow and hail. She had a magical blackthorn staff. And when she would strike the ground with it, the earth would freeze as hard as iron. She became a winter goddess and reigned over the land. And oh, how she loved the land. She loved to wander across the land she had created, hopping across the mountains as if they were stepping stones. And she loved the animals and they loved her in return. She would be followed by foxes and wolves, eagle and deer. You would know she was near because the eagles would shriek with joy to see her. And it's said that she would protect the deer from hunters because she loved them so. Every year, she would wash her great sun-colored shawl just off the Isle of Jura, creating the enormous cauldron, the Cory Brecon Whirlpool. When the shawl was clean and white, she would throw it across the mountains to dry. 
She still does that to this day. You might have seen it. It was hard, though, for the people of these frozen lands to live in endless winter. This great freeze eventually left many hungry, and the men and women in the clans of the mountains and the valleys would gather by their small fires trying to stay warm and sharing stories. One story was passed from village to village, barely a whisper to begin with, but it grew. That there was a child, so beautiful that whoever looked upon her face would feel the same warmth that they feel from the hearth fire. You couldn't help but feel hope when you saw her bright eyes, and her smile melted you like ice. Some said that a child like this had the potential to bring an end to the Winter Queen's reign. When the Kaliak heard this, she thought it was so offensive that she raged and threw hail and ice and snow at the land even harder to punish those that challenged her in this way. But as tends to happen when times become hard, the story grew in strength. And the old woman muttered of a prophecy that a beautiful young woman would rise up and would defeat the Kaliak. The Kaliak herself heard this and began to fret. Fear of losing her beautiful, beloved land made her blood run cold. Losing everything she had built, her queendom, everything she had taken for granted suddenly seemed a little more fragile, a little less certain. It ate away at her until it turned to anger. Who was this child? What had she done to deserve these lands? How could she possibly be stronger, more powerful than the giantess who created the land herself? Surely beauty wouldn't triumph over her wisdom and experience. So the Kaliak and her eight storm hags searched the land coast to coast, every village, every town, until they found her, the child. Her name was Bride. The Kaliak took her and kept her prisoner underneath Ben Nevis. She gave her the meanest of tasks to keep her occupied. Over time, Bride's clothes turned to rags and her hands were rough from the hard work. But she had only grown in beauty and radiance. She became a glowing, radiant young woman. She worked away without complaint, which somehow only made the Kaliak despise her more. So, one day, the Kaliak gave Bride an impossible task. Take this brown fleece to the river and wash it until it's pure white. I don't want to see a speck of brown left on it. Do not return to me until you have done this. Bride did as she was told. She washed and washed the fleece in the ice-cold water until her fingers were numb. But of course, the fleece remained brown. When she returned, the Kaliak scolded her and called her lazy. She told her she'd need to go back to the river tomorrow and every day until the fleece was as white as the snow on the ground. 
And so this went on for days, until one day, Bride was scrubbing the fleece in the icy river, her hands red raw. She couldn't take any more. She threw the fleece to the ground and began to weep. Just then, a grey-bearded old man stepped out of the snow-covered trees. Why are you crying, child? he asked. Bride looked up, held up the fleece, and began to explain. Well, I have to wash this fleece until it's white, but it's impossible. The old man reached out and took the wet brown fleece. He shook it once, twice, three times. And on the third time, it suddenly gleamed as white as snow. Bride gasped and her heart leapt with joy. Who are you? She cried, I am old Father Winter, he said. You must take this to your queen with a message and these. He handed her a small bunch of white snowdrops. Bride had never seen anything like them. She was delighted. Tell the queen that these flowers are growing in the firwoods. Cress is springing up on the banks of the streams and new grass is shooting up in the fields underneath the snow. Bride thanked him and ran as fast as she could back to the foot of Ben Nevis with the fleece in one hand and the snowdrops in the other. She ran into the queen's hall and threw herself at her feet, early able to contain her excitement because surely now, the goddess would be pleased with her. The Kaliak saw the snowdrops first and almost fainted with fear to see the strange flowers that she herself had never seen. She had not created those. Her fear turned to anger. And when she heard the message Bride had been given by Old Father Winter, she struck her and banished her to her room underneath the mountain. But the joy in Bride's heart didn't fade, because now she knew there were powers other than the Kalia. There was something happening, change was coming, and something was stirring in her own body too. The Kaliak summoned her eight hag servants, riding on their eight shaggy goats and sent them in all directions to blast the land with hail and wind. And she rode on her grey mare across the land, striking the ground with her staff, so that it was hard, so hard that no flower or shoot would stand a chance of bursting through. Now, across the land, in the emerald green isle of youth, across the sea, one of the Kaliak's sons, Angus, the ever young, had a dream. He dreamt of the most beautiful woman that he had ever seen, weeping by a river. She was dressed in rags, and even though she was crying, she looked like the most beautiful and absolutely perfect maiden. And she was so perfect that he fell in love. In the morning when he woke, Angus could not stop thinking about the dream. So he went to the king of the Green Isle. 
And he asked him about the woman he dreamt of. Ah, said the king, that is bride. She's kept captive by the Kaliak, the winter queen, who's cruel to her. No one knows where. But one day in the future, you will be king of summer and she will be your queen. Well, of course, Angus was delighted. And he couldn't wait to find her, to rescue her, to hold her. The king warned him that it was too soon. The Kaliak's power was all too great still. Angus should wait until he matured a bit, until his own powers grew. He's still just too young. But youth always knows best and can never wait. And Angus could not wait. The king warned him again. Angus, it's the wolf month now. Uncertain is the temper of the wolf. Wait a while. The sea was stormy and dark, and the waves were much too high for him to cross. But Angus instead cast a spell on the sea and a spell on the land. He borrowed three days from August so that the waves would become calm and he could ride across on his magical white horse. And so he arrived on the land. He began to search the frozen forest for bride with only his crimson red cloak to shield him from the wind, rain and hail. He searched and he searched. Meanwhile, bride dreamt of Angus. She saw how hard he searched for her and how he would not give up hope. And when she woke, she thought about how it might be possible for her to escape and she wept tears of joy. As the tears landed on the floor, they turned to violet, the color of her beautiful eyes. The Kaliak, of course, heard that her son Angus had arrived. She heard that he was searching for bride and she raised a huge storm that sent him back to the Green Isle. But he returned as soon as he'd gathered his strength and he kept searching. Until one day, Bride slipped away from where she was being held under the mountain. She wandered through the forest as if under a spell, down to the river. And wherever she stepped, primroses sprang up from the ground. She cried more tears of joy which of course sprang up as violets. And when they saw her, the birds began to sing. And it was here, of course it was here, that Angus finally saw her. When they found each other and recognized one another from their dreams, they fell absolutely head over heels in love. The kind of love that only the young tumble into. First love, and that was the first day of spring. As they were talking and gazing at each other and holding one another and soaking each other up, they didn't notice that a huge procession of fairies had arrived in the clearing, the fairy queen's court. The fairy queen herself was there and she spoke to them 
and told them of their destiny, that they had a long and challenging road ahead with many battles to be won against the Kalia, but that eventually they would rule over these lands as the king and queen of summer. The fairy queen waved her hand and bride's ragged clothing became transformed into a beautiful white robe with a white hooded cloak. She looked so fine standing beside Angus the ever young in his green royal clothes. In her hair appeared spring flowers, violets, daisies and pale pink wild roses. In her hand appeared a wand entwined with woven corn stalks. In her other hand, a golden horn appeared. This would become known as the Horn of Plenty. And at that moment, a small bird, a linnet, let out the most beautiful song celebrating bride's freedom. It made even the stern fairy queen smile. And she said, linnet, from now on, you will be called the bird of pride. Across the land, this song spread through the fields and trees all the way to the shore. And the first bird on the beaches to sing this song was the oyster catcher, who sang so happily that the fairy queen heard and said, oyster catcher, you will be known as the page of pride from now on. Angus and Bride followed the Fairy Queen's procession all the way into the side of a green hill and down the long hallway to the other world. And there they were married. And there was a great feast, followed by the most incredible party in the Queen's magnificent palace. The joy rippled out into this realm, and everyone in the whole land felt the warmth of the sun on their faces as they raised a toast to the newlyweds. When Bride and Angus emerged, Angus recited magical spells, which made the grass grow green and tall. Bride waved her hand and wee buds appeared on the trees. Now, while this was happening, the Kaliak and her hag servants were drawing upon all of their strength. And just as Bride and Angus began to relax into the spring warmth, the hags mounted their shaggy goats and set off in all directions to blast the land with freezing rain. The Kaliak struck the ground with her staff and froze it as hard as iron again. Angus pulled Bride up onto his white horse and fled with her. The Kaliak mounted her grey mare and raced after him. As she urged her horse to leap across a rocky ravine on the island of Tyree, the horse's front hooves left a huge imprint in the landscape, known to this day as Lemony, the horse's leap. But the lovers escaped to the Green Isle and spent a few days there enjoying one another, safe from the Kaliak's powers. Until after a wee while, Angus crossed the ocean again only to be blasted back to the Green Isle by the Winter Goddess. This happened time and time again. The Kaliak would rise cruel winds and beat the ground to prevent anything more from growing. Then came the weeks of leanness. Food became scarce. 
many went hungry in those last days of winter. The stores of food ran out for humans and animals alike. Many sheep and cattle died. Folk used the last of their wood to keep warm. Hope began to dwindle. And the battle between Angus and the Kaliak raged on, back and forward, until Bride walked across the ocean from the Green Isle. She stepped through the land, warming the earth with her feet, and she dipped her hands into the highest rivers, melting the very lap of the ice. The Kaliak let out a last green and threw her blackthorn staff under a holly bush, where she then lay down and fell into a deep, dreamless sleep. And Angus and Bride were crowned the king and queen of summer at last. Oh, Katie, thank you for that story. What a gift. What a journey. I'm just, I'm struck by how it's a love story at so many levels. Just the way you say the Kalyak loved the land and then knowing about the love between Bride and Angus and then just the love of the earth itself for its people and its desire to be renewed. What a gift. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. So knowing that not work storytelling tends to tend toward the Irish stories, listeners who've been with us for three seasons have heard most of these names before, right? We know that Angus has appeared in the Kalyak and Bride in the form of Bridget has been on the show several times at this point. So I first want to just begin with saying thank you for offering us the Scottish tradition and giving us this, I don't know, could we say it's sort of the cousin's version of these stories? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many parallels between Bridget and Bride and the same with St. Bridget and St. Bride that we have here in Scotland. And a lot of the yeah, the myths and the legends about St. Bride, I mean, it's obviously it's St. Bridget, it's the same person. Mm. Right. But Bride, the goddess here, is actually a very different being, I think. There are lots of similarities, but she's a very different being as well. Yeah. And that was one reason I was so excited to have you on, because oftentimes around in bulk when it's February 1st and there's this telling of the lore of Bridget, there's so many of the Irish stories come in. And then you feel like, oh, then there's these little additions that feel exciting. And yet, wait, there's something so much more to that. And that's what you've brought us today with the sense of that relationship with Kalyak and Bride having such specific significance to the Scottish lands and the understanding of the Scottish seasons. Because, of course, just the fact that we're telling this story right here at the start of April has real significance too, right? Yeah. On the 25th of March, we have Lana Kailik, which is the day that the Kalyak throws her staff underneath the holly bush. Mm. It's also known as Ladies' Day. So the story is just ended now hasn't it and I think the story it just so perfectly sums up 
the weather in Scotland over January and February because we do get these false starts to spring every year. And I guess they would the story would have been a bit of a warning to people not to prematurely leap into spring. Mm-hmm. And we have all these storms as well. So why don't you tell me a little bit about the source of this story and also how you've worked with it to really make it your own? Yeah, so a lot of this story comes from Donald Alexander Mackenzie's Wonder Tales. He was a, a folklorist and a writer in the early 20th century. And he traveled all over Scotland and um, collecting folklore and folk tales. And then he gathered them all up and wrote down his version of the story. But it's actually, it's not my favorite version of the story because I feel that in some ways it does bride and the Kaliak for the service because the Kaliak is sort of presented as this cruel, wicked, almost like wicked stepmother. Mm. And his story starts with her capturing bride and keeping her underneath the mountain and she's in rags and she's doing chores it's very cinderella mm-hmm. and then the fairy queen comes along and transforms her into this glowing white gowned princess but my Kalia is a creator she's a powerful source of creativity she's a fertile energy she's the earth and she created the land and it's quite hard to see this creator that version of her in Donald Alexander Mackenzie's version of the story Mm. so I purposefully chose to begin earlier and to yeah to introduce her as yeah this mother goddess actually Mm. yeah she's easy to fall in love with and of course it's yeah it's that sense of you emphasize the power of time and passage and how she barely noticed and yet she changed so much from going to being that creatrix, mother of all, and then describing her physical changes, how her skin turned blue and her hair white and her teeth like rust. And that metamorphosis that she went through, it's so beautiful and it's so you know, it's funny, I, part of me wants to say it's unexpected. And of course, we know that time passes and we know that all beings age, but giving her that space to move from being herself, that sort of bride of the world, that young, young being into being the the hag, the fearsome, loathsome lady. It just, I'm so grateful to have that chance to sit with the fullness of her story. So thank you for that. Yeah. And she, is often described in Scottish mythology as being terrifying. Mm. And I think that's the image of her that a lot of us have today is just how fearsome she is. And I think when I tell this story, I'm not able to tell it without figuring out why, why she becomes cruel, why Mm. she captures pride. Yeah. And that's why I decided to as you and I were first connecting over this story, you know, you and I are both in the mothering stage of life. And yet we're also seen to be women who are very aware of that full spectrum of, oh, right. And someday our hag time is coming. Our time to be the crone, the Kalyak, certainly reminded of Sharon Blackie's work. Have you read or come in contact with Hagitude oh, yet? Her, her newest book? I haven't read Hagitude, but I 
love if women rose to be kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that's the, that's the start for so many women yeah. in our circle, right? That sense of like, oh, wait, we're not alone in these dreams. Someone else has already written this book. Thank you. <laughs> and then we all just sort of get to root, branch out from there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in part, you're telling the story at this time of the year, just after March 25th is so perfect. But I can't help but notice just in how th- the synchronicities weave together, the story that I shared last week on Notwork Storytelling was the story of Césaire, which is that story of Ireland's first woman, but it's also the story of the flood. And it's that, mm-hmm. that sense of you know the biblical flood, like as in the ark, and that sense of waters rising. And that's exactly where you began the story today was exactly the memoir I ended last week. Yeah. <laughs> a few hundred miles over and in a sort of different mythological world. And yet there's those commonalities we're all sharing here of saying, oh, certain things happened in the world, whether it was that God caused the floods to rise or it was a sense of, well, the ice caps melted because the last ice age ended. These stories are all rooted in that sort of sense, of, in these commonalities both biblical and ecological. So I find it just so remarkable that that's where your story began today. Yeah, and the Kaliak, she controls the waters and brings floods in many stories. I mean, that's supposed to be where Loch Ol comes from. The Kaliak um, used to draw her water from a magical well every morning and she would have to replace the lid of the well afterwards. And one day she forgets to replace the lid of the well and it floods up. And when she realizes it's too late and Loch Awe has already come into existence. And also some of the rivers. I mean, the river Ness was supposed to be the Kaliak servant, Nessa, who forgot to replace the lid of a well. (laughs) And Loch Ness came into existence and the Kaliaks scolded her and punished her by turning her into the river nest. Wow. That's so interesting. I mean, that it just underscores, you know, we're in this moment now of being very aware of human engagement with the earth is causing climate change. And yet you look back and it's that sense of, right, when people were not mindful, when they're what they were not being good stewards of the land or of the well, there was this belief and understanding that things went a little bit sideways. And I find that really remarkable the way, well, of course, that's why we go back to these old stories, right? Because it's always just reminding us of what was then is now and will be. Yeah. And these stories are medicine because Mm. we're grieving, I think, as a species. We don't know where we're supposed to be in the natural order of things. And so these tales about when the natural order of things was disturbed and these things happen are just so, they're just so important to us right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. Cause things are happening out of season all over the earth mm-hmm. right now. Right. And it's that sense of, mm-hmm. it feels in, in some ways, everyone's awakening more and more to this ecological consciousness, this understanding of, right. We live in rhythm with the earth. If we're in a part of the planet that has seasons, they really matter to us. And that moment of, yes, of course, you're not your most bright and brilliant in January. You're supposed to be sitting in the cave, you know, with a fire surviving right now. But at that moment when so many people seem to be coming back to a consciousness of our connection to the earth, it's also 
at the same moment and because those earthly cycles are a bit less predictable, right? And are the trees budding? I'm here in New York. We were watching the trees start to bud in January because we didn't really start getting snow until March. And it's just that sense of right now as we're sitting here in April and the daffodils are up, I'm full of joy, but I'm also full of like, wait, I don't know that I followed all the usual steps to get to this point, but we're at spring again. Hallelujah. And do you think it'll snow tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a cycle. This this story, you know, it begins again at Samhain. It begins again in October where the Kaliak awake from her slumber Mm. and the whole story starts again. So we have this Celtic wheel of the year and it's explaining the seasons. And I think it would have provided a lot of comfort throughout the winter months for folk to know that spring will come again and times were hard and there wasn't as much food, but it was it's going to come back. And I can't help but think that we, we don't get the same comfort from it now because instead it just serves as such a stark reminder that everything's out of sync. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, will you tell us a little bit about where you are in Scotland and how, what your connection to the earth is on a, like, where do you get sustenance? What, you know, what bits of the landscape really feed you? Yeah, so I'm in the Scottish borders. I'm in a little town called Peebles. And I grew up actually just over the border in Northumberland, so really not far away. And it actually took me a long time to fall in love with this land. Mm. I was so hungry to travel. I was so desperate. As soon as I could, when I hit my 20s, I went traveling, searching for endless summer, (laughs) (laughs) maybe looking for my version of the green art. And I avoided winter for lots of years. But now that I'm back on these lands, I can't believe I didn't see the beauty in in the winter weather, in the autumn, in the, it's, the landscape here is made for rain. It's so Mm. green and we have the hills all around us. We're surrounded by forest here, although sadly a lot of it isn't native forest anymore. We're surrounded by a lot of plantation forest, Mm. which it can look beautiful from a distance, but when you're actually in it, it's a bit of a it, it's a bit of a desert actually underneath those trees. But we mm-hmm. do have some little pockets here in the borders of Northumberland, the beautiful native forest that would have been part of the Caledonian forest that used to cover Scotland from shore to shore. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much folklore in the borders. There's just so much to discover, and it's really magical actually to. To get lost in it. It's so fascinating to me endlessly how liminal spaces, whether it's the salt marsh between the ocean and the beach, or whether it's on Samhain when you just have a sense that the veil between the worlds is the thinnest, or whether it's the border between two countries, there just seems to be that sense of a collection of energies that are just so fertile in the way that Perhaps it's the paradoxes and it's the overlaps and it's the contrasts and it's the way in which people and spirit and biological beings have found ways to create anew where these two different spaces meet. Mm, Yeah. And that shows up time and time again in the Scottish stories, the 
the magic always happens when you're on the bank between loch and shore or mm. you're where the man-made world turns into the, the wasteland or yeah always in these liminal spaces and that's supposed to be where you're closest to the other world right. and where you're most likely to see a ghost <laughs> or mm-hmm. a fairy or where you might actually just accidentally slip between worlds and actually there's another there's a story on the podcast from season one i'm not sure if you had a chance to hear it from michael newton who he's a an american who's a scots gaelic scholar and he tells the story of a man at a Cayley who doesn't have a story to tell. And so he's sent out to the well to draw water and he sees a boat and he gets inside that boat, goes across the lock. You, you look like you know what story this is. Yeah, right? I know it and I love it. <laughs> yes. So for our listeners who haven't heard it yet, he goes across and becomes a woman for a time and inhabits her life and becomes fully immersed in, in it until one day well, they'll have to go back and I'll leave the link to the story and they'll have to go back and hear it. But it's a wonderful liminal spaces sort of story that draws in human experience as well as all, you know, the nature and the spirit of the land and itself. And you feel that when you're out in the in the wild spaces, that feeling that actually anything is possible right now. You could easily just slip into another world or another life. And a bit like in the story, the queen of the fairies might just appear from seemingly nowhere. <laughs> yeah, any hill could ca- carry any secret in any in an entire other world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about you as storyteller and how you, you know, I appreciate hearing that you traveled for a long time before coming back to home. How did these stories find a home in you? Mm. So I grew up with my dad telling me stories, making up stories at bedtime. Mm. He would just create a story out of anything I threw at him. And eventually I started doing that myself. So I've been a storyteller right from childhood. I love telling stories. And I loved reading books about mythology and other religions. I actually, now I can't remember exactly how old I was and I was supposed to check with my mom before we had this interview, but I think I was about 11, 10 or 11. I got a lot of books out of the library about different religions and I loved the Hindu myths and the Hindu stories and pictures of the goddesses and the gods in the books. There's something so vibrant about them and I actually asked my mom and dad if I could become Hindu. I don't think I really understood how that worked. And they were very good about it. They sort of, they didn't give me a reality check or anything, you know, about how that (laughs) might not be as easy as I was imagining. But I just love the stories of other worlds, of gods and goddesses and magical other realms. And I just loved it from such a young age. And as I got older and I went traveling, I began to see the stories. Um, I was lucky enough to see, you know, beautiful artwork on temple walls in India and Southeast Asia. And I sort of started collecting stories. I mean, it wasn't an intentional thing to begin with. I was just Mm -hmm. enjoying them as I went. But eventually it became more intentional and I was writing down and I had notebooks and notebooks and stories. And when I returned to Scotland I just 
realized that they're not my stories necessarily to tell. Mm. And around about the same time, I was called in very kindly by some wonderful Southeast Asian friends. And just they very kindly told me, you know, they're not my stories to tell. And mm. using them might be cultural appropriation. Mm. And I just felt wretched because I love these stories. And I, I wanted so much to be able to see myself in these goddesses and these powerful mm. women that I'd seen. And yeah, when I finally discovered Kaliak and Bride and Bridget and all of the many strong, incredible Irish goddesses and female characters and female warriors in the mythology here, mm. I was just delighted. I couldn't learn them fast enough. Like, I, I love to tell them. Mm. Oh, Katie, I so appreciate that story and that your story of coming to find the stories that you were meant to tell. And yeah, the whole question of cultural appropriation is such a difficult one we feel in our bones and in ourselves and in our hearts. And it brings tears saying, wait, I'm trying to honor and wait, did I do it the right way? How do we tread carefully? I'm always so aware of that myself as an American saying, yeah, I may have some lineage in Ireland and Scotland, but how do I hold and honor and give space to other voices and know that I'm a storyteller too? And how do I keep learning from those who were raised in these stories or who just walked these stories in your bones, right? Like that sense of when you're walking outside, you're walking on what the Kalyak fell from her creel. And I'm always aware that I don't know the stories here of New York, of Lenape people in that same way. And I'm not sure that I ever can, but I'm still trying. But thank you for sharing that reflection. Yeah. And we can, there's a, there is a beauty in connecting to the land wherever you are in the world through the stories that belong to that land. Like I had a really profound experience listening to um, the stories from Aboriginal people in Australia about the mm -hmm. land. And to me, Australia was just so alien and otherworldly compared to Scotland and Northumberland, you know, mm. it's red dust and the stories there just like came alive because they just belonged so much to that land and they just, I could see it all happening, you know, like the rainbow serpent and all the different incredible mystical beings that they have over there. But yeah, they're not mine either. So. And yet we're still, they still invite us in to open something new for us that says, how can I, again, honor this, carry it across the, carry the energy of it perhaps and imbue it with something else. I actually, I dreamt I was in Australia last night. So it's just, again, no. there's no coincidences <laughs> any in any of this. And it was this remarkable story of, well, when you, it's, you know, it's the other side of the world from where I am. So it's that sense of, right. I I went there with my husband and it was a moment of changing jobs, changing work, changing everything, reacquainting. And it makes sense that the unconscious would pull out a place on the other side of the world. But I just remember, well, I haven't been there myself, but the vivid 
it was blue in my in my dream that it was always it was, it was being on the water and this blue sky and blue ocean. So whatever that's worth. And now here we are talking of blue skinned Kalyaks, you know, a yeah. few, you know, from the other side of the earth. Uh, I just, this is where I just always want to make room for my like, gee whiz, this is neat sort of sense because the wonder of all this is meant to be noticed and held, like just in the way that as bride is weeping and the the violets are appearing from her tears and the way that you named so many plants and the, the birds all coming through, like each one of those is such an opportunity for wonder and knowing like someone wrapped that in narrative because that was a part of their natural world that was always there that deserved recognition and that once upon a time was easier to recognize before we were looking at our phones and doing all the things that we do today. But thank you for that, just that weaving and that and bringing us there with that natural honoring. Mm -hmm. I think that's why these stories are so important. You know, Mm -hmm. they, whether it's me telling the tale of the Kaliak and the landscape where, you know, her horse's hooves have made imprints in the earth, or you have Clackeran at the falls of of Connell where the Kaliak's goats cross the water. We have these parts of the landscape that are protected and preserved and held by the story and it makes them important it makes people want to protect them it's the same in australia you know there were so many places across the landscape are sacred to the aboriginal people and the stories protect them and remember them and all of these stories wherever we are in the world they're they're telling us to love the earth yeah. Oh, it feels perfect that we're kind of ending with this power of place names because I know that's so important to you and the way that you hold these stories. I hope it's not too much to ask. I would love a little list of the places that you've named in this story just for so people could just kind of be with them and the names and even pronounce whether they can pronounce them well or not when looking at them on the page. I feel like there's just that power and resonance of, well, actually, I think I was when you and I were speaking before the interview, I mentioned this book by Keith Basso called Wisdom Sits in Places, and it's about the language of the Western Apache. But one of the things that I think the, I believe the writer was a white man who was be, was spending a great deal of time with the Apache. But one of the things that the elders said to him was the importance of pronouncing things correctly, not out of a desire to shame anyone, but to say these words were in the mouths of the ancestors. And I'm going to use this word again here, but that sense of we're honoring the ancestors and those who came before by uttering the place name and by speaking it aloud again. Yeah. And protecting the language. Mm-hmm. And there's been a, a, a huge rising of the popularity of learning Gaelic, Scottish mm-hmm. Gaelic, and it's on Duolingo now. It's, it's crazy figures for the amount of people worldwide that have started learning Gaelic. Yeah, And I mean, I'm quite a beginner to learning Gaelic as well. And I, I don't find learning languages easy, but mm. I just think it's so important. It's such an ancient language and it belongs to these lands and it protects and preserves not just the language and the words, but the names for places come from a time when humans had a deeper and more personal relationship with 
nature and the earth. Mm-hmm. So there's just so much to learn from that and from the names and from the, the, the Gallic names for plants and trees. And, you know, they give hints to their medicinal uses and their folkloric uses. It is so important to remember and connect to native languages wherever we are. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a, a difference to be in a place that's named for a geological feature made by a goddess than by the dude who allegedly discovered a space, right? Like what happens when we just sit with that sense of like, oh, there's a lot of layers here. Which one are we resonating with? Is it with, you know, in the case of being in the States, is it with the colonizer or is it with the people who came here before? And can we learn the oldest names? Mm-hmm. Well, as we say farewell today, I do hope that we'll get you back for more stories, perhaps around Samhain. <laughs> Is there any other bit of of wisdom or thought around Bride and the Kalyak story or any other elements that you'd like to bring to us as we say farewell? Just that I would love to invite you to look for her in the landscape, for the Kalyak or Bride, whichever yeah, whichever you feel connected to most. Yeah, look for her. Look for the Kaliak's cloak on the mountaintops as it lies there drying, you know? Look for bride's footsteps when you see primroses or her tears when you see violets. Just keep an eye out. And maybe you might hear the eagle shriek for joy and you know she's near. And maybe just take a moment to feel her close. That brings tears to my eyes. Katie, thank you so much for bringing your stories and your open heart. It's been such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way... Everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub, Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach, at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.